0: Welcome to 90% Mental, I'm your host, Grant Parr, and thank you for joining us for our 27th episode. You know, not too long ago, I was introduced to Dr. John Heil, who is a sports psychologist that's done some incredible work within the sports psychology community, and he's written books on on the psychology of injury. He's worked with the Olympics. He's done a lot of great work within a lot of sports, especially in the sport of fencing. But as I was talking to him a little bit more about what he's doing today and, and what he's passionate about, he started to bring up the topic around hazing in sports, which made me think about, as an athlete, all the times that I either been hazed, or I was involved in hazing, or witnessing hazing from afar. And we've all known that there's been some really horrific stories, whether if it's in sports, in the fraternal system, or within a corporate setting, hazing is a really serious issue. So John wanted to talk to me a little bit about his awareness and his energy and what he's trying to do to provide more education around this topic. What you're going to learn in this conversation is not only his, his passion for bringing awareness and education around this topic, but we're also going to talk about different types of hazing, good hazing versus bad hazing, when it becomes just initiation or it becomes more of a horrific event. So I can't wait for you to hear Dr. John Heil talk about, about the awareness and about just his thought process on this topic. So let's go talk to Dr. John Heil. Hey, John, how are you?
1: I'm good, Grant.
0: How are you? I'm doing great. I'm, I'm really, really excited, but I'm very interested in the topic that we're going to be talking about today, which is hazing in sports. And I just think that the more that I was doing my research on this topic, it just makes me realize this epidemic that we have within our society is really – it's very serious and this topic is very relevant. And I'm really excited to kind of hear your thoughts on hazing, your research – and why are you you know, stepping forward and bringing more awareness around this topic?
1: Okay, yeah, let's. Uh, sounds good. I'm looking forward to the opportunity to speak with you.
0: Beautiful, great. Well, I always ask every, every uh, guest that's on my show, I always ask them what does mentally tough mean to them to set the tone of my show. So what does mentally tough mean to you?
1: Well, I, I think uh, mentally tough means having the grip to keep going when you need to, Uh, despite doubt, despite controversy, uh, despite the elements, and despite other people putting obstacles in your path. And I, I think pretty much people universally agree that that's the case. But what I also think is an important element in it is the ability to just sometimes step outside the situation and really see it and assess it for what it is. Uh, and that's hard to do. It's hard to step back out and step back in. And a lot of people will, pretty good once they figure out what they want to do, they can lock in on that pathway. But I think it's really important that we lock in on the right pathway to begin with. And that's the part of uh, mental toughness, the mental part of the toughness that I think tends to get overlooked in the literature and sometimes in conversation as well.
0: Absolutely. No, I agree I agree with you 100%. Now, with the theme of hazing within sports, does hazing make an athlete mentally tough?
1: You know, I think sometimes we, uh, we are made tougher by enduring the things that we must. And I think sometimes people endure hazing uh, because they feel they must. And I think it can make them tougher for having gotten through it. But there's just so many other negative factors um, that take away from... Uh, Confidence in your teammates, group dynamics, uh, and and just the whole atmosphere and uh, contextual aspect of your sport environment that whatever mental toughness benefit you may get from it, and arguably it's there, uh, there's just so many other detractors that that, uh, it doesn't end up as a net positive.
0: Right, right. Now, tell me a little bit about why you stepped forward and, and put a lot of energy and effort in, you know, creating awareness around hazing.
1: It just so happened that uh, a series of hazing-related behaviors and, and other forms of interpersonal violence in the sport team dynamic just just—just was in my pathway. Uh, I just kept encountering it. At the same time, I was uh, in office as a president of the Society for Sport Exercise and Performance Psychology, and, and we're encouraged in that role to try to take on some initiative within the sport world, something that would be relevant and would have an impact, and, and so those two things came together for me, and, um, and so now it's about three, four years later, and I'm uh, continuing to do work. I, I think I had mentioned uh, that we're about to launch a, a sport hazing website, it's a site for everyone, for athletes, coaches, administrators, and psychologists, it's a place that they can go and be educated about sport hazing, but more importantly, uh, get materials that would enable them to do a community presentation. Uh, so it includes a video, it includes PowerPoint presentation, background research, handouts, and so forth. So, pretty excited to uh, have that about to come to fruition after all this period of time.
0: You know, as I've done a lot of research on, on this topic, it, it was alarming that, you know, and we're going to go over a lot of stats um, pertaining to hazing, but, you know, Alfred University did a survey. They uncovered that 80% of college athletes have been hazed, and I think that's just crazy to think about 80% of college athletes have been hazed.
1: Uh, it, that, that's a huge number. I know that that was a fairly extensive study. I know University of Maine did a fairly extensive study as well, This kind of surprised me, these numbers, when I first heard them, because when I competed in in college, there was virtually no hazing whatsoever. In uh, sports, I competed in track and field and distance running, really nothing at all. And I had quite a few friends that competed in other sports, and there really wasn't so much going on. Uh, and, And what did happen didn't seem to be demeaning or destructive in any way. You know, sometimes there was obviously this... Outgrouping, grouping group transitioning, there was stuff that was done that was led by those that were established members of the team and directed at those who were the new members. But, yeah, sometimes it was kind of light and a little funny and, and not hurtful in any way. I'm not sure it was necessary, but a lot of what I saw back at that time, I, I didn't really see it as so damaging. Yeah, I'm surprised. It, it, it's hard to know when something's kept in the darkness whether it's worse now than it was. But my sense is that, yes, it really is. And it, it, it's something about society now that's created a larger problem, I think.
0: Right. Now, you, know, you talked a little bit about, you know, just having fun and having casual hazing or informal hazing, if you will. And, you know, should that be tolerated? Because, and, and I'll bring up an experience that I went through when I was playing uh, Division Two football, where everyone was getting their head shaved, to be a part of the team and i didn't feel like i needed to shave my head to be a part of the team and basically it got to a point after a week and when everybody had a shaved head and i didn't it was after practice where when i walked into the locker room you know a lot of guys had a couple shavers and they had them on and i was like all right i, g- I gave in because i felt like i didn't have a choice i did have a choice but but i felt like i just had to do it just to suffice everybody and even though it was just shaving my head, my hair grows back. But it just—it was against my my will in this in a sense. And and I've watched and listened to some of your presentations. You talk about a word called double bind. What is that? What does double bind mean?
1: Uh, a double bind is uh, catch twenty two. If any of the listeners would be familiar with uh, the novel and the movie by uh, Joseph Heller. Uh, but essentially, a catch twenty two is a situation where you have the illusion of a choice. You can do one thing, you can do another, but both are a potentially punishing alternative. So, you know, maybe you could have in that situation said, well, no, I'm not going to do it. And you might've been ostracized or distanced from the other teammates. Uh, or if you go ahead and do it, then you kind of lose in that way because you're, you are you didn't want to do it. and And when people don't stand up, then the tradition continues. And and part of my sense is that as hazing goes on longer and longer, and there is a tradition, people sometimes one group tends to outdo the next, right. and I, I I think that that's probably one of the dynamics that tries to take things that are somewhat innocent and and, and make them into something that can be dangerous.
0: And, and, and in my instance, I I felt that I had that 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 double bind perspective. I felt like. I had a choice, but I didn't have a choice. And no matter if I did do it or didn't, the, the outcome wasn't what I really wanted. So that's, that's very interesting.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But By definition, uh, you can't consent to hazing because if you don't consent, you lose. So that's double bind. Yeah. There's a cost if you do and a cost if you don't.
0: Exactly. Do you think hazing will ever go away?
1: Uh, I I hope so. But I think here's the catch is that whenever there's a a new group forms, it's a team, uh, there's always this uh, transformation process where the group needs to uh, establish itself, get an identity, create a hierarchy, find leadership. So there's always this uh, stormy process, I think, that comes with uh, uh, developing a team. And, And so what my wish is is that we just accept that that's part of the way things are, but that we try to be proactive and for coaches and administrators and with the involvement of sports psychologists, ideally, to try to teach team-building practices to help people find things that will help move that transition along and that will bring the new group into the established group. Uh, but do so in a way that's uh, more positive and, and more constructive. You know, I, I hope, that's my wish. Uh, we're not going to be, be able to just stop people from doing the hazing, because it just pushes it underground, I think. Right. And so we're, we just have to recognize that there's this interpersonal group, team dynamic going on, and we just need to give uh, examples of a better way to do things.
0: Yeah, You brought up coaches, and having them be a part of, uh, you know, changing this mindset. But, you know, some again, going through some stats, 40% of coaches or club advisors were aware of hazing or a part of it. That's just a, an alarming number of, you know, leaders and coaches and advisors knowing that this stuff is happening or even being involved.
1: You know, it is an alarming number, and I think part of why the number is so high is that, that much of what you would consider to be hazing as it's defined in terms of kind of specific things to do, like the freshman carrying the balls in from the field or doing certain other things, they can be construed as hazing, but but some of it seems pretty innocent, you know, and understandable. And when there is an established tradition of doing that type of thing, I I think uh, people, coaches, it's hard to find fault with it. And then, uh, so so there may be some things that are undetected. There may be uh, not... uh, kind of a sense of diligence on Coach's part, which which there should be now because there's just so many uh, horrific incidents. You know, uh, that's year after year in a college environment by hazing. And uh, I think part of the other problem is that uh, when things have been done many times before, we tend to have a false sense of safety. And I'll point to an example back again, from a couple decades ago, there was a time when uh, drunk driving didn't really get the attention it deserved. Uh, people kind of laugh it off. And, uh, you know, so people would drive drunk, and most of the time nothing went wrong, but, but when it did and it was catastrophic, people try to come to grips with how, how could this thing happen. It's too late to undo it. And so there's this um, false sense of safety that comes with risky behaviors that might lead to a bad outcome, 1 in 10 or 1 in 100 or even 1 in 500. But as the numbers grow, as there are more and more incidents of certain behaviors, then the likelihood of there being an adverse outcome really starts to increase.
0: Right. Yeah, again, throwing a little bit more numbers out there just to kind of bring this more to light. but. You know, it's interesting that like forty percent of athletes or student athletes admit knowing that there's hazing activities, but then on, on the other side, nine out of ten students who have experienced hazing, they don't they don't admit that they were a part of hazing. So, where do you think there's that disconnect there?
1: Uh, do you mean that there's some students that are technically are hazed, but they wouldn't if they asked them, "Were you hazed?" They would say no, not as a not out of deception, but just out of Lack of understanding. Correct. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, people intuitively understand that in-group, out-group transition, and it, it is pretty commonplace. And uh, so some things aren't necessarily that bad. I, uh, For instance, in college, I was also in a fraternity, and there certainly was some things that were done that were, uh, by definition, hazing. But they were really kind of humorous and fun. So uh, if someone had asked me back then, was I hazed? You know, I would say no, but i was never forced to do anything that I felt demeaned me or was put my health in danger or jeopardy. But you know, we used to have to stand in a group. Uh, if somebody did something wrong, we'd have to do push-ups. Um, the uh, upperclassmen would kind of yell us at about, yell at us about different things. But some of the things they'd yell at us about were bad behaviors that we probably needed to correct. Something that your parents would call attention to. So. Um, in the end, it, it just didn't seem like a bad experience. I wouldn't call it hazing. And and I think the, it's a good question because it points out the question of what is it and what isn't it, and what is the part of it that we need to worry about, and what, what part of it is maybe not that helpful or constructive, but, but really not so worrisome. And, you know, so part of the problem with hazing is, is it's really hard to really clearly define it.
0: Yeah, I agree because I also was in a fraternity as well in college and, you know, and I, again, I had the same experience you did, but, you know, when, when do you look at it as hazing versus initiation and, you know, and, and initiation can be innocent and you, you can do some funny things, but, you know, like what's, what's the line and, you know, when you think of hazing, you know, it doesn't have to be necessarily in the fraternal world. Again, it can be in, in a, in a sporting world, but Do you see hazing can develop into bullying or it can be a form of bullying?
1: Yeah, I think hazing certainly can be bullying. It it can be group bullying, essentially, one group on another. Typically, you know, we tend to think of bullying as more of uh, something that happens to an individual. Uh, But I think essentially if hazing doesn't have an endpoint, then it becomes bullying. It's easy for hazing to slip into bullying. It's easy for hazing to slip into harassment about issues, perhaps gender or race or ethnicity. Uh, you know, so so the the they're all forms of interpersonal violence, and and it, the one can slip into the other, and and that's why you know there need to be cautions. But uh, you know, I think in the end, going back to what you'd pointed out, a lot of coaches know what's going on. I, I think. Coaches, It's their team and and they're the leaders. And so they need to try to be proactive and they need to be paying attention and and they need to be providing guidance. And I think most of the time, most of them are uh, uh, doing a good job, letting some things go. But then uh, sometimes there are those things that happen. And then the question is, does the coach step up and really do something about it? Does the coach really initiate change or is it just kind of tucked away, kept
0: quiet? Right. And I think there's an opportunity, like you said, with coaches to, you know, as they're developing their athletes, you know, on and off the field is, you know, how do you use better better judgment? You know, there's going to be, like you said, that fine line of having fun and, you know, and, and some of that fun does provide some cohesiveness with the team, but when it gets a little bit out of hand, you know, who is going to step up and use better judgment and make sure it, it doesn't go to the next level?
1: Yeah, and I, I think that's, the single most important thing because, um, you know, there were some people who would take a really strict definition of hazing by, by specific practices, and that would be any kind of outgroup person being forced to do something that everybody else in the team doesn't have to do. You know, it just kind of ties people up in knots. It makes people feel constricted, and it really kind of undermines that, uh, that process for, where people have to find roles within a team and establish an identity. And so, you know, I think the coaches just need to make that part of their job. Um, in, in theory, and hopefully in practice, you know, in the vast majority of competitive sports environments, the role of the coach is to develop the person as well as develop the athlete. And uh, as you were referencing there, that, that's part of development. How, how do you become part of a group? How do you prove yourself? Um, how, as a leader... Do you make your team stronger? All these things. And so I, I think these are the questions that people naturally struggle with in those environments. And, and, uh, and it's these very appropriate and poignant questions that I think sometimes lead people into hazing practices. And if I would say coaches but also captains are cognizant of this and, and really uh, look at that as a leadership opportunity, then I, I think the, the worrisome incidents will greatly decrease.
0: I agree. Now, I believe there's there's a an element or a component of hazing where it's very ego-driven. What do you think drives the ego for an individual or a group of individuals to carry out hazing practices?
1: You know, I think at a fundamental uh, level, very fundamental level, we all want to be in control of our lives and ourselves, and we've all struggled with situations where we uh, felt uh, helplessness and when you can exert that kind of control over another person it, it, it is empowering I don't think it's empowering in, in a healthy way but it but it is somewhat seductive I think uh, to feel in control to feel empowered to feel strong in that setting but here again I think what we want people to learn in the sportive environment is is to establish leadership to gain control power and influence based upon the Quality of your behavior, how you support your teammates in difficult situations, how you cultivate mental toughness in yourself and in your uh, teammates, how you lead on the field. I think we want to steer people that way to meet this very basic need of, uh, of belonging and feeling in control of your life.
0: Yeah, and you know, and it leads me to this this article that um, I was reading as well, and it, and it was it was kind of touching on the mindset of veterans versus rookie how or rookies how the veterans are entitled to either see out a legacy or tradition and and this this uh writer was talking about that whole mindset is is the virus of can be the virus of hazing and how this virus actually comes back into a program every year it sometimes it stays within the whole um program, organization throughout the season, or it kind of fades out, but that virus always kind of comes back at the beginning of every season. So how do we break the mindset of, well, they did it to me, so I can do it to them? How do we, how do we change that whole mindset?
1: Uh, yeah, it's, it's, that's the question, and, and uh, if there were a simple answer, I think it would be accomplished. So, so there is no easy answer, and I think all the solution-oriented thoughts that we've uh, put forward here in our conversation so far are uh, pieces in that puzzle, but it's uh, it's really tough to break tradition, uh, especially when I think as we were also discussing the the tradition and these practices evolved from some pretty deep-seated human needs. Unfortunately, hazing is really not the the best way, or not necessarily a good way, to to, to accomplish that. So. Again, recognizing that those needs are there and trying to meet those needs proactively instead of leaving it to people's own devices where, you know, hazing's a shortcut to being in control and to creating a, a, a team dynamic. It's a shortcut because it doesn't require necessarily a lot of thought. Uh, doesn't necessarily require a lot of scrutiny. And that's why it goes wrong and that's why it's really not helpful to begin with you know so even when it's not a problem is it really helpful and that you know so that's
0: the other question uh I, I love it i mean that was that was a great answer to to hazing hazing is a shortcut to control or power and i think that is man that that shed a lot of light just on my perspective on on hazing when we think of hazing as a whole do you think it's an epidemic within our society
1: uh it it seems to be yes and I say that because even as there's more and more attention in the public eye, more and more concern expressed about it, there doesn't really seem to have been much of much of a change. And that's what makes me willing to, to refer to it as an epidemic, as, as you suggested. And, again, part of seeing it as, at epidemic scale is, is something that I see as different from when I was competing in sports decades ago and and now. E- even knowing that hazing did happen, it just didn't it certainly were bad examples, but it just didn't seem to be so widespread, such a widespread negative.
0: Right, and it, it's, it's it's interesting how over, over time, you know, and I know there's been some really just tragic incidents um in the past but it just seems like over time hazing there's these limits that that people want to test and you know when you look at the incident in 2014 at uh, florida am with uh, robert champion where you know for him this is this is not even a sport i mean it's a it's a marching band and he's literally beaten to death um in the back of a bus which i can think they called it crossing bus c and you know Everybody in the band either hits you or kicks you or hits you with drumsticks and mallets, and he ended up dying from that and It's like when is it enough like like to to physically get beat up just to be a part of an organization or a group
1: yeah I, I think part of the larger context here is the attention that we see from other quarters to uh, the me- mental health of of uh, college athletes in general mental health of uh of college students in general, uh, so there may feeding this may be greater incidence of depression and and anxiety in this uh, in this generation for reasons that are likely no fault of their own. You know they didn't. It, it, it's a it's a function of the environment that uh, they live in, which is not the environment that they created. And I, I think uh, on one hand, if you're feeling powerless, you're more likely to. Be coerced, and if you need power, you're more likely to be a coercer. And so I, I, I think it crosses over some with probably uh, a higher frequency of mental health type issues, college age person in general.
0: Got it. Got it. Now, now, do you see, you know, when you look at hazing in all sports, is there a sport that that you have seen more hazing? activities in or is it is it really hard to track that by sport?
1: I just think it's so hard to track it because by nature it tends to be secret. Mm. And it tends to be held within the group so it's and even when you're close to a group it could be going on and you wouldn't see it, you wouldn't notice it. That's a dilemma, yeah.
0: Right. And then when you look at gender are we seeing more hazing activities within the the male gender or female?
1: Uh, Again, it's hard to say, but there's plenty of examples of bad female behavior. Yeah, we know guys have been doing it for a while, but uh, you know, it's certainly not the case that women are not participating.
0: Right. Yeah, there's another number saying that 50 percent of females that are within the NCAA Division One community have reported that they were hazed. And again, at the Division One level, that's huge. It's, it's massive.
1: You know, of course there's lots of examples where people do set limits and, and keep things from going wrong. And we don't want to overstate the problem by making everybody complicit, but uh, I think what we do understand is when you look at the, the complexities of group dynamics to begin with, and you look at the maturity of the individual trying to run it, uh, that's where problems come in. And then the, most of the worst of the hazing seems to be really, you know, be a component of alcohol and drug use, you know, the, the worst of it. And, and obviously when people are intoxicated, their judgment's diminished, and I think uh, uh, when that's the case, that, that's probably a pretty significant contributor to the uh, to the worst of the hazing that's done. And I think if you keep alcohol and drugs out of it, it's probably less likely to spin out.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess more often than not you hear when, especially these these tragic events that happen, there's there's some kind of alcohol or drugs that are involved.
1: Yeah, yeah, I uh, of the cases that I'm personally familiar with that were terribly went terribly wrong that was the case.
0: Right. Now when when you think of hazing, I know that in a lot of states, you know, out of fifty states, there's forty-four states that have hazing laws in place. And and it's interesting that the states that are not that don't have hazing laws in place are Alaska, Hawaii, Montana, South Dakota, New Mexico, and Wyoming. Why do you think those states don't take a stand or don't have hazing laws in place?
1: I, I wonder. Uh, I don't really know. Perhaps it's because they haven't had that one horrible high-profile event that would motivate people to do something. Uh, that That's just a guess. Got it. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think a lot of times when we see legislation, we see policies and so forth, they often follow a really bad event. And, and so I think when something does, terrible does happen, people go, well, how can we fix this? How can we keep it from happening, happening again? And that's, I think, when we find laws and we find policies and so forth. But, you know, obviously this would work better uh, if there were a larger umbrella. You know, for instance, if the United States could create a, a standard that would apply to all the states. And if you look at the state guidelines, they're written very differently uh, some are very fuzzy and so you have a hazing policy and it looks like someone said we need a hazing policy but let's write something that no one can really do anything with mm-hmm. so vague it, it, it's not really operational and then there's others that are very explicit this is hazing that is hazing and and maybe over inclusive in the sense that uh, if someone were zealous, in the way of trying to punish someone for hazing, perhaps even something that was innocent, could be considered illegal. So it's, I think it's really important that we get things right, that we we find where that line is, and uh, we don't we don't, in our zealousness to prevent the worst thing, just kind of cause cause further problems by uh, making people guilty beyond the. Uh, in a way that beyond
0: what their behavior would call for, right? You know, there was um, there was a video that I was watching, and there was various presentations that you were uh, conducting. and And I forget there was there was actually a collegiate coach that was on the panel with you, and he was a swim coach. and And I liked the way that he was talking about how he handles, you know, how he sets expectations at the beginning of the year, and he has all of his athletes, you know, sign this document that they're going to be adhering to these rules. But when it came to hazing, when he said, you know, if I have to talk to you, I think more than twice, then we've got to make some decisions here. And and again, when you look at hazing, you know, there can be very small, casual, fun hazing or can there be extreme. So when it's just, you know, when you have to talk to somebody twice, when can it just, just be a non-negotiable? Like it just it doesn't exist with the program. Or is that not good for a program? Is it necessary to have... A little bit of that fun initiation hazing within a program.
1: I I think uh, athletes need to be given some leeway uh, initially, just because there is an established tradition, there is expectation, and because um, they're learning. You know, and, and I guess my point is that sometimes what people want to want to be team building ends up being hazing, and ends up being negative and I think it's a, a teaching opportunity. So, I don't think a zero tolerance policy makes sense. Um, I, I think we're focusing on sport here, of course. It creates an opportunity for learn, learning how to be part of a group, mm-hmm. how to move from an out group to an in group, how to be a leader, how to welcome and, ex- and bring new people along. And I think. It's a challenging task, and, and if you leave it to people's devices, even with their best intention, they're going to make mistakes, and I think we, we want to be diligent enough to keep them from making some really bad mistakes, and then I, I think we want to be leaders enough to help them see you know, why this wasn't such a good idea and what might have been done differently to accomplish that same purpose.
0: No, that's great. I, uh, I appreciate your perspective on that very much. Now, before we close here, I want to ask you a question. If there is a either a high school or a collegiate athlete that emotionally is being, you know, emotionally is affected by a certain hazing activity, and it's really it's really screwing with their mindset on how they're going to practice, how they feel about their self-worth, what what would you do from your perspective as far as how would you give advice to this athlete to, to seek the proper help to, um, to get emotionally fit again?
1: Um, uh, yeah, so tough question, you know, uh, uh, it would vary based on, you know, what the team dynamic is, what, what's the individual's personal, uh, situation and condition. Uh, and, and so the, the first and simplest intervention might be to just try to get it in perspective, help someone understand that uh, perhaps it wasn't personal, uh, that it wasn't meant to be harmful. The next step might be that, yeah, it was harmful, and, but it, it was a function of just immaturity, people trying to do the right thing but doing the wrong thing. So number one, trying to get perspective. Um, if there's some unfinished business, the need to try to stand up to people But, you know, it's complicated, but some people are like, I'm afraid if I do that, I'm going to lose my standing on the team. Right. Uh, And so, in the end, it's not my choice, it's their choice. But I, I can try to help them understand their own personal psychology, try to understand the dynamics of pacing, try to give them a path to finding some peace with it, whether that would be within themselves or in joining with other people who they share the hazing experience with or in something in the context of the whole team. If we could do that, uh, you know, sometimes the situation is just so destructive, the person is not going to really be able to be a part of the team any longer. And then it's a question of helping them kind of deal with that sense of loss and what that means. You know, if the organization supports them in their decision, then becomes easier, but then if the organization tries to cover things up, then it becomes even more complicated and obviously more destructive. And, and sometimes when the organization actively looks away, actively avoids finding a solution, and, and may even kind of blame the victim or scapegoat person, really got a problem. And it, it's, uh, it's a really tough one to fix because person's in another double bind. You can just lead the organization altogether, together, the school, the, the team, whatever. Or you can stay, but, but you, you stay in a way that you feel diminished and demeaned and So sort a of very, very difficult situation. And uh, when uh, the coach is supported by the athletic director, and the athletic director is supported by the dean, and the dean is supported by the president, the, 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 the sense of helplessness and powerlessness is, is significant. And that's why it's really good to see, you know, what's happening in Michigan State right now with people really finally being held accountable, uh, even though it wasn't hazing per se, you know, it was a form of interpersonal violence that was going on with sexual assault. But when you look at the the kind of cover-ups that organizations engage engage in, you, you find a common set of practices and you see that the people that have been once victimized, by a a situation like hazing or sexual assault become victimized again by the uh, failure of the organization to really live up to what its noble mission purports to be. And uh, the fact that there is such uh, an impact being seen at Michigan State now, I I think, is a positive sign.
0: Yeah, I agree. And I I think also, touching on what you just were talking about, I think, you know, to do the noble thing and, and... and to be a whistleblower it there's a lot of consequences to to doing that whether if it's hazing or sexual assault whatever it is it's it's depending on the organization it's a 50 50 thing where yes you could really do a good thing and then the organization is going to act in the right way or it can turn against you in many ways so it's uh you, you walk a fine line when you want to come out and expose something that that's actually bad, but there's um, there could be some more detrimental things that can come out of that that decision.
1: Yeah I would say a whistleblower is more likely to help another person than themselves, yeah, because it's it's the next round of people that don't experience that that's the impact that the whistleblower has if there's an impact at all. Usually often whistleblowers are made to suffer for yeah. having, having done
0: so. Yeah, definitely. No, I agree. Now, in regards to education, where can people, you know, get more education on hazing and maybe learn different ways of uh, rectifying or even supporting people that have gone through hazing? Is there, is there articles, portals, websites besides your, besides your website that they can check out?
1: Uh, yes. Uh, there's an organization called, uh, stop hazing uh, which is broadly focused on the problem of hazing across a, a wide variety of environments so that would be uh, that would be one uh, the step up program uh, bystander awareness program at the uh, at University of Arizona is a really another good example it was developed in conjunction with the um, with the NCAA and it looks at uh, it includes hazing, but it looks at a wide variety of campus behaviors, it, and much of the thrust of it is getting people to speak up and, and try to make change. So those would be two things. If you're an Olympic sport, USS, the USOC, the United States Olympic Committee, has a safe sport program. That's a resource as well. So I, I think those are the places that I would, uh, would point someone, other than uh, the website that I already referenced that I'm trying to get, uh, that will be launched here in um, the next week or two that will focus specifically on on sport hazing.
0: Great. Again, uh John, I really appreciate your your insight. Uh this, you know, again, this has been something, you know, I've played, you know, football and sports for a long time. I've I've seen it, I've been a part of it, I've been on the other end of hazing, and I just feel like um it's something that's, you know, for the most part, our society gets numb that we we just kind of get used to it. And I think what you're doing as far as bringing awareness and promoting awareness around hazing is awesome. And I'm, I'm behind your efforts, and um, and I really appreciate your your time and and having you on my show today.
1: Thanks so much for the opportunity to to be able to speak uh, to you and to your audience.
0: Great, appreciate it.